Perfect Organism is taking a break as we prepare for Alien Day. This week, we present our coverage of HBO's The Last of Us. This is a two-part discussion. To hear our second part, be sure to sign up for Patreon by going to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you. This is Framerate, brought to you by Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, and Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Framerate, our Patreon-exclusive film review show. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts... Patrick Green. Micah Green. And special returning guest... Dan Ferlito. How are you guys doing? Doing great. I'm not, I'm, I haven't quite just gotten back from Namibia as uh, one of our other panelists tonight have, but I, I gotta say, I'm just as, as excited as I would be had I just gotten back from Namibia, because Dan is back on the show tonight after... Well, it feels like it's been six or seven years. I think it's been about a year and a half, but my God. Uh, no, it's yeah. been longer than that. Has it been Maybe two years? Two? two and a half? Two years. That's wild. Three years. Like four no, it's, years. It's been it's been two years. Yeah, I have I yeah. this is my first time coming back, actually, which is crazy because we've talked about it a bunch of times. It just hasn't worked out until yeah. tonight. It's great. And you still get messages. Like we just got one of our patrons sent a message to Dan Patrick and Jamie just yesterday. So you're still very much in the conversation, Dan. Yeah, well, I feel I certainly feel like I'm uh, part of things, and we all still talk. So, yeah, thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming back. And tonight we are here to discuss The Last of Us, released by HBO. Yeah, this is a long time coming. This is our number one most requested Patreon episode in my entire time on this show. So much so that we're going to have at least two of these. Just as a heads up, because we have a lot of people who have asked to be included in the conversation, and we want to have more voices in here next time around so for but for this one we're going to keep it kind of tight um you know we all have different levels of engagement with this uh franchise anybody who's listened to our previous episode on the last of us we did a, a video game episode on the last of us part two when that came out back in 2020 um but we you know haven't revisited this franchise since then and it's been something that's been very much on our hearts um for you know at least for dan and micah and i for for more than a decade now which is I guess, yeah, for just about a decade this summer, um, which is just amazing. So anyway, I guess we can kind of start with that. Uh, you want to kind of go through just why don't we start with Micah with your personal like history with The Last of Us and, you know, how we came to this moment? Sure. OK, well, um, my first experience was in 2013 when I watched you play through it and both of us were just immediately absorbed in the world that Naughty Dog and Neil Druckmann created Anyone who has been requesting this frame rate will know that this story has such a hold over any audience that gives it a chance. And even from that first playthrough, Patrick, I have been so obsessed with the story of The Last of Us. Flash forward to 
playing it multiple times, playing the remake of it, playing The Last of Us Part Two when it came out, just an expansion of the already beloved story and further look into the journeys of these characters that are so close to us and so realistic and human and amazing. Um, we played through that. I still can't stop thinking about The Last of Us Part Two, And then what's really funny is uh, I recently played through it myself and I'm I'm more of an observer with games but um recently I mean The Last of Us Part 1 was the first game I ever played by myself and finished so that was a big deal for me um and it was really wonderful um and for years since this franchise first um was given to us I've been telling all of our friends about the story and about how amazing it is and how close it is to my heart and how much of an impact it's made on me. And I've always been so frustrated because they haven't been able to experience it in the way that we have. So when we found out that um, HBO was making a series, I something inside of me just like was set on fire because I was so excited that people who don't play video games were finally going to be able to experience The Last of Us. And as soon as we found out who was involved and the fact that Naughty Dog and Neil Druckmann would be a part of the process. I felt so relieved. I, I knew that it was going to be good as soon as I heard Craig Mason was going to be writing it. All this blabbering to say I am so thrilled with how it came out and I can't wait to discuss it with you guys. So I didn't have a PlayStation. I've gone back and forth between Xbox and PlayStation, but I didn't have one in 2013, I think, when Last of Us came out. So I had heard about it and I was like, God damn it, I want to play this game, but it's an exclusive, which is a good reason to have a PlayStation is so many great. There's at least a dozen games that are you could only play on PlayStation, although this is coming out on PC or already has this month, uh, the remake that they did in September. So I think in when I got a PS4 five years ago or something like that, first game I bought. Absolutely. It was this and like God of War, but I went straight to The Last of Us because I had, heard, you know, I'd seen all the awards that had won and I couldn't wait to play it. So I did experience, you know, the original um, or maybe they they upgraded it for PS4, but it wasn't quite the remake that they did recently. So I experienced the story and played it through three or four times and just thought it was brilliant. Um, again, especially the writing and the characters, uh, which is, I don't know, I, there certainly are games that are well made in that sense. But this had just a feel, the, the level of realism they brought to it. And then, of course, for anybody who plays a video game, there's that additional sort of... It really helps you become a character. I already watch film in that way where I really just absorb myself or transport myself into that world. But a video game is that much more so that way. And all the modern technology things they've added to it, you know, the dual shock vibration and really making that more and more specific and adding different things. So, you know, when you're firing a weapon or, you know, doing action stuff, it really translates some a physicality to you. So that's a pretty special thing. And then a couple of years ago, when The Last of Us Part Two came out, um, you know, I showed some scenes to uh, Jackie just because I was like, man, this game, I mean, it looks amazing. Look at, you know, what's happening. Look at these characters. And it was uh, impressive. And I never thought, in fact, unfortunately, I spoiled the beginning of uh, Last of Us 2 with like some major things that happen in that. 
because I never ever did it cross my mind that this would become a show that everyone would be watching. Otherwise, I would have never spoiled that for Jackie. So I feel bad about that. But again, um, yeah, it's almost that feeling like I, I can relate to what Micah said. It's almost that feeling of, um, you know, when you have this like really special friend or really special group of friends that you wish you could introduce to this other friend or group of friends. And then one day it happens and it's like this magical thing and you get this limited time where you're like having these worlds collide. That's how I feel now that basically the entire world is getting to experience the world of the last of us, because oftentimes with video games, it's something you can only relate to, you know, Oftentimes your guy friends and occasionally there's a few women in your life that play games, but most of the time it's it's men and it's people who grew up on games and you can talk to other people about it, but it's kind of like trying to talk to people about comic books who don't have a feel for comic books. It, it's easy to write it off and be like, yeah, whatever, it's a video game, I don't care. So yeah, it's been interesting to see this transition and to watch everyone get into this show and to kind of get to share that experience with the world. Uh, is a really, really cool feeling. And I can't remember the last time I had a feeling like that. Not to mention that Jackie has been glued to the screen and watching every episode three, four times with me. She's just as into it as I am. And I can't remember the last time I was watching something, you know, episodically as it came out every week with my partner. So um, yeah, it, it feels like a really special moment in time. And I think just like music and film and other types of media that we really, really care about and impact us. I can't think of a game that has impacted me more or where I cared more about the story and the characters. So yes, it's a video game, you know, the original material, but I kind of hold it on a higher level than the average game that is just played for entertainment. So I'm really excited to talk about the story and talk about uh, its its impact on everyone. Yeah, I'll go quickly because Micah already said part of mine. And also I want to get to Jamie, who has a, a kind of a different perspective on this, having not played the game before. But uh, just, I, I, you know, I want to take a moment and step back in time 10 years ago to when this thing came out. And I remember specific, this was a day one thing for us. Like we were already, you know, we've been a PlayStation family for a long time. We were, we were definitely going to play it the day it came out, but we were already, you know, inculcated in this environment that was very zombie, uh, you know, positive, right? <laughs> like, cause we had walking dead. We were like obsessed with that show for the first, I mean, for me, it was really just the first season, but we, we kept watching it for another eight years after that, you know, and there were a lot of really good zombie games in the zeitgeist, like left for dead uh, or like, you know, Dead Island, which was something that came out right before this, which similarly had these sort of cinematic aspirations. But, you know, Dead Island, for example, came out shortly before this. And to me, it was like it just it was only the the aesthetic of the zombie world. It was like, oh, this is just a lot of blood and guts and like waves of you know things to fight. And it felt very much like other zombie games. And then The Last of Us comes out. And within you know, an hour of, I mean, less than that, within 20 minutes of starting the game, I was instantly like, oh, this is a totally different experience. Like I'm going to have to, to shift my expectations hugely. And the first time playing through The Last of Us to me to this day remains one of the most impactful video game experiences I've had in my entire lifetime. And The Last of Us Part Two is probably the most impactful video game experience that I've ever had. 
And a major reason for that is because of the consistent subverting of expectations that it does, not just in terms of what what it does with post-apocalyptic or quote-unquote zombie tropes, but with character and with the audacity to push characters in directions that are very uncomfortable and to lean into those things in really significant ways that make us as participants, if we're playing the game, or as viewers, if we're watching the show, feel physically and emotionally uncomfortable for the right reasons for extended periods of time. So all of that is to say, we are not going to spoil things, especially in part two tonight, because there are, there are things in that that are sacrosanct that are such important story beats that like, if anybody out here has not already had that spoiled, um, just do yourself a favor and don't read about it. Like don't listen to chatter about what's going to happen. What's not going to happen because we don't know what's going to actually happen in the show. And we've already seen pretty significant diversions from it, but also like just go into it with a clean slate because part of the beauty of the last of us is that it's so hard to predict where the narrative is going. And so, yeah. So just to kind of wrap up my little intro thoughts here, I was really excited to know that this was going to be a show because if there's any video game that I've ever played in my life that could work as one, it was The Last of Us. And not only was this Neil Druckmann running things, but he had Craig Mazin, who was hot off of Chernobyl. And uh, just a brief plug for anybody who doesn't already listen to script notes. I know I've actually listened to it with Jamie before. That's um, Craig Mazin and John August's very long-running screenwriting podcast. Check it out because you get a lot of insider stuff about how he puts things together. Anyway, without further ado, Jamie, what's your history with The Last of Us? Did it start with the show? Was it on your radar before that? Or how do you come into this whole thing? I came into The Last of Us through you and Dan. And and you talking about how it was one of the most emotionally impactful experiences you've ever had playing a game before. And as someone who is not a gamer, as everyone knows, specifically you and Dan know that, um, I, you were saying that, I was like, okay, that's great. It just was kind of in one ear out the other, not because I didn't think it was true, but it's a game like and part of my uh, experience with games is I've never been emotionally invested in a game before. I just I don't have that experience. The closest I've ever come was recently when I was at your house watching you play The Last of Us before the show premiered and we you played it for about 35, 40 minutes and I wanted you to play it forever. Was that we actually played it for almost two hours? Did we? Did you? Yeah, we did. Because wow. I remember being okay. like, "Are you sure you're still into it?" And you're like, "Yeah, we're good. Keep going." <laughs> we, we played it like quite, quite a big chunk of that, actually. Yeah, and it was engrossing, and it was emotional, and I didn't want it to stop. And of course, it was the, probably covered the first three episodes of the show. But aside from that, that's my only only knowledge of The Last of Us. However. I am a fan of Pedro Pascal, as I know everyone is. We know him from The Mandalorian. I'm a big fan of Bella Ramsey, who we know is uh, Leanna Mormont from Game of Thrones. Huge fan of Game of Thrones. She was absolutely incredible in that role. She's one of the best actors in that show. Totally underrated. She should have won an award for her role. Um, so those actors brought me to the series. I am someone, and I know I don't know what Dan's experience is with this, but I've always loved The Walking Dead. Uh I should say, I loved the first two, three, four seasons of The Walking Dead. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. And then it lost me. Just It completely just fell off a cliff and ended up just being a, a just a cyclical repeat every week of the same thing over and over and over and over. But I wanted to love it, but I just couldn't, and I had to stop. And so 
I knew that The Last of Us had some similar themes going on in the show, but I also knew that we're talking about HBO, and I know the content that comes from HBO. There's very little that's come from HBO that we're like, oh, that shit. Very, very little. Probably a few things here and there. So I know when HBO is going to produce a show, they're going to produce the best of the best. On top of also knowing that some of the people behind Chernobyl are behind The Last of Us. That sold me right there. Chernobyl is one of the best shows I've ever seen. So that's all I knew kind of going in. I knew a little bit of the beginning because you had played the game. Dan had talked about it with me briefly. I haven't seen Dan play it. I've seen Dan play other games. I've sat and watched Dan play. What What did you play when I was- God of War, you saw some of the latest- God of uh, War, yeah. Which the newest God of War. Which is also going to be another show on, on uh, Amazon. Uh, so that's really my history of it. So I went in kind of blind and it was quite something. In talking about this, I think that for myself, I have to really check myself because I think, okay, I've been really invested in this game for years and I'm invested in the second game. Um, Both of those things are an additional layer onto how you absorb this show and experience it compared to someone like Jamie, who's relatively uninitiated or just has a little bit of exposure to the games. And I think what's really interesting is that the creators of this and specifically Neil Druckmann thought about this because I know from if you don't know, there's an HBO companion podcast to this that they put out um, with Troy Baker, who plays the voice of Joel in the original uh, games uh, narrating or sorry, uh, hosting the podcast. And then Neil Druckmann is on there. Craig Mazin is on there and they have Ashley Johnson, etc. You can also go back to the Last of Us game podcast where they talk a lot about the characters and that if you want to really dive into it. But what's interesting in listening to the creators talk about it is that they wanted to make a show that was going to be equally attractive and interesting to people who had a background in the games and people who had no context with the games. And so... I think as gamers for us, we were kind of going into it going, okay, how much of this is going to be done identical to the game? Because so much of the game is so well done from a cinematic perspective. And then what are they going to change and how are they going to change it? Um, And I think the reason why this show is so good, part of it is because they really put a lot of thought into what do we keep the same? What do we change? And how do we transfer this experience to a different medium? Because they they clearly chose to elevate what worked well for this medium and kind of not include, for example, a lot of the action that is just, you know, it's an action-packed game and you can't translate that a lot to the show, especially with a limited run of, uh, you know, about nine or ten hours or whatever this ended up being, maybe a little bit less. So, yeah, I want to kind of see, um, I mean, from Jamie, I want to know, how this feels knowing that it's adapted from a video game and from Micah and Patrick, if you want to talk about kind of what your expectations were and then how you went into it. And I'd like to caveat that with, you know, I knew going into it that I needed to try and contain my expectations because I didn't want to ruin the show for myself by being like, Oh, they need to do this or they need to do that, or they need to show this scene. So I very forcefully tried to be, as neutral as possible and be like, all right, let's see how this goes. Bella Ramsey, for example, while she's a great actor, 
uh, didn't sell me physically as Ellie at first. And I had to kind of get used to the different look of her and her interpretation of the lines, et cetera. So yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit uh, from you guys about how that experience was for you. Can I jump in here just to add on Um, something that you said about how they really put a lot of thought into it. Um, And I get this just from listening to the companion podcast, the HBO companion podcast, Craig Mazin first and foremost is a huge fan of the game. So I think that's part of the reason why the two of them, Neil Druckmann and Craig Mason coming together to create the show worked so well because Craig came from a spot of such respect for the game. He talks a lot at length about um, his experience playing the game and how he felt on each of the major emotional moments that we get to see translated from game to TV show. So I think it's really important that they did that. It w- It's almost as if they couldn't have picked a better person to write the actual screenplay and like the script and dialogue of the show because the person that they picked is just so invested and so respectful of the original material. So that's something that's really wonderful. Um, (laughs) Unlike you, Dan, I did not check my expectations. I really... (laughs) I could have been severely disappointed, which is, I I just like put it out there. Um, As soon as I heard, okay, they're making The Last of Us, like I, before we knew anything about who would be in it or who was involved, I was like, okay, I'm already like over the moon because I want, I just like want so much for this to be good. So I can share this story with everybody that I know who doesn't play video games. So I remember Patrick, you were like, please don't get upset if it's not as good as you think it's going to be. But I just, for some reason, I was like, you know what? No, I just, I have a feeling it's going to be good. As soon as we heard Craig Mazin was on board, we we also love Chernobyl. Um, I, I knew that it was going to be well-written, if nothing else. But then we found out that Neil Druckmann was also involved. So it's like, okay, I know from just documentaries and other um videos about the making of the last of us game that neil is a very good collaborator and he also is protective of this story because he has loved these characters for as long as they've been anywhere in the atmosphere so i just i didn't check my expectations and i am so happy that they were rewarded (laughs) because the show is the best thing that i have ever seen truly on television um I've also liked Pedro Pascal for a very long time. Um, and I knew that his Joel was going to be very interesting and very nuanced. I didn't really know Bella Ramsey. I don't think that I got that far into Game of Thrones to see her. So she was also like you, Dan, like I was a little like, who is this girl? And she's about to take on such an important character. I don't know how I feel about that, but I'm happy to say that she really did a beautiful job. And I think, um, Something to go off of what you were saying as well, Dan, with the translation of the story from the video game to the actual show, we get to see a lot of pullback on the action, like you were saying, because I think they say this on the podcast, for them, the action was more emotional. um, And they really wanted, it seems, to establish these characters in the most real way possible so that audiences could really relate 
to the emotional journey of the characters, which is at the heart of the game, too. I mean, you can't play a video game that would be just like the show that we just saw. It would be a lot of cinematics. It would be a lot of just, you know, dialogue. But you also, I think, would get tired watching a show that has that many infected battles or that many battles against other humans. So they had to take some artistic liberties and bring more of an emotional arc to the show. And I think what they did was very profound. I mean, I'm sure we'll go into different episodes, but there's just so many rich moments of human interaction in these in these episodes. It's just astounding. And it's I just feel like so lucky that we get this show, that we get to watch the show and have it and discuss it. Um, I'll be quiet now. You don't have to be quiet, but just going back to something that uh, that you were getting at, Micah, you know, when, so the, this project, it wasn't so much, and I know you know this because we've listened to this together, but it's not so much that they asked Craig Mazin to do this. HBO said, you can do anything you want. <laughs> what do you want to do? Literally. And he was like, I want to make an adaptation of The Last of Us. And that was how that's how this whole thing started. And then they knew somebody who could get him in touch with Neil Druckmann. They went out to lunch together. And that was like the beginning of this entire project. So it's an interesting little window into how things at HBO work, where they they, they pick certain talents that they just believe in so much. And they give them the latitude and the budget to make great art, you know, which is amazing. Um, so it's really cool. And I think it speaks to what you were getting at, which is that like he was clearly the right person to help adapt this because it was something that was a passion project of his. He played the game and was in love with it and was like, I think I can do something with this. But in terms of like, a, as a case study of how you do this right, because this is like the first time that a video game adaptation has been done to this level of quality. And I know I'm going to get complaints from people. Listen, I also enjoy Sonic the Hedgehog. Like there, it's not, I'm not saying that there have been no well-made adaptations of things from video games, but like Castlevania being a great example of a really good one. To me, the level of quality of this show is so high, even just among television shows, that I think it really sets a new, obviously it sets a new bar for for adaptations in general from anything else, like books included, in my opinion. But from video games in particular, it does some things so well. I think one of the things that it does so well is it finds really uh, insightful in purposeful ways of including people who were in, involved in the original project, sometimes in unexpected ways. So you have certain things like Gustavo Santayala, who of course is an, a great composer and, and his soundtrack for the games is just legendary and it has such a distinct sound. And he already has proven himself in things like Brokeback Mountain and elsewhere as somebody who can work in multiple types of different, you know, media. So he was a great fit, but then they brought on David Fleming who fled the score out into more of a long form television score because Gustavo doesn't, you know, like to work that way, um, which was just a really good choice. Troy Baker, of course, who is one of my absolute favorite performers of any kind ever because he's just done such great work, originated the role of Joel. But instead of casting somebody who looked and sounded like Troy Baker, they went with Pedro Pascal. And then Troy Baker got to stay on as James and have like really meaty dialogue. He got to play somebody who was antithetical to Joel because he was, you know, aligned with David, which is like this incredibly scary character in the game and in the end of the, the adaptation. Um, and of course, you have Ashley Johnson, who originated the role of Ellie, and she gets to play the mother of Ellie. She gets to play Anna in this thing. So it's like all these people who have deep ties to the original source material are still 
fundamental parts of it. And I think that's something that I haven't really seen before. They're not just Easter eggs, right? Like when I first heard that Troy was going to be in this adaptation, I expected him to be like some, somebody getting bit by a, you know, infected or something, or just like some random, you know, bystander. But instead of that, they gave him this like just wonderful part and he got to have a really climactic death scene. Ashley Johnson was not just window dressing or she wasn't just like some random woman on a bus somewhere. She played this like pivotal role. She only had a few minutes of screen time, but it was unforgettably powerful. Um, And likewise, Neil Druckmann not only was involved as a producer, which I think a lot of other adaptations would have done, they would have, you know, had, you know, for example, Hideo Kojima come on as a producer of something and been like, oh, that's enough. Like now he's involved and his fans will come see it. But Neil Druckmann, you know, was the co-showrunner for this thing and also directed episodes, which is another important thing that sets The Last of Us apart from other properties, which is that Neil Druckmann, of course, directed in addition to being the head writer of the games. So he has experience with getting the emotional performances out of people in the right way. And I think having that common touch was really important because it helps the show feel like the game without feeling like it's copying it. And to that end, I will say the performances to me are just extraordinary because in my heart, like there's nobody else who could play Joel or Ellie than Troy Baker and Ashley Johnson. And then I now I've been proven wrong, right? Like I have seen amazing different performances that were not facsimiles of the originals that were not slavishly indebted to these legendary things in the video game that were actually new interpretations that felt completely real and authentic. And by the end of the series, I was so attached to Bella Ramsey's Ellie that I was like on the edge of my seat, worried about her. I was like, please don't let anything happen to her, you know? And that leads me, we'll get to episodes, you know, after this, but to my favorite moment in the entire game, which was one of this handful of things like, they're going to obviously do this in the show. They have to do it because people love it. But when she has the moment with the giraffe, to me, like it is, it's a moment of such beauty and such importance for so many reasons, you know, whether it's from a story perspective and about Joel crystallizing what he has to do or from Ellie's perspective that she gets to have a moment of actual authentic joy in the midst of like such trauma. This, this moment of like, I don't know. It's like it's like when Denny Villeneuve does something in 2049 that feels like the spontaneous artistic decision, but it's like arrived at because of instinct, you know, from a story beat perspective. Like the draft sequence is an example of that. And that's where you get when you make real art is you get to moments like that, that like who else would have fucking put that in, in, a, in a quote unquote zombie thing, you know? Anyway, um, that's that's a lot of word diarrhea for me too, but I, I really mean it. Like this is... Uh, it's just, it's just, to me, it is the gold standard for how you can adapt something properly. Jamie, what did you think? So in terms of adaptations, I've seen films like Assassin's Creed. I've seen the Lara Croft films with uh, Angelina Jolie. Those are shit. Uh, they look good. They aren't good. Uh, I, I know that there's a, a, a very kind of famous link between live action adaptations of games. And there's this almost curse on them where they none of them turn out. And it's really true. I know that there are some exceptions. Um, I know you mentioned one of them being Castlevania and then another one, maybe Sonic. I would never watch a Sonic movie. So I, I, you know, it's, I don't it's know. a pretty good, it's a pretty good movie. You know, <laughs> it's not great, um, but so in terms of how it, uh, it read to me, how it played for me, it was flawless. Um, but I also know again, based off of watching Chernobyl, that I was in for something special. Chernobyl was really, really, 
something out of left field. It was this like shining city on a hill in terms of a show, even for HBO who does really great work. Chernobyl was even higher, like a higher bar for them. It was really great. So I knew um, going in that it was going to be something different, but at the same time, I didn't know what to expect, but I also brought in my own disappointment from, as I was talking about earlier, the walking dead and wanting to love something that just didn't love you back. And it was just more interested in telling the same stories over and over without really nuance or subtlety or anything. It was just zombies killing zombies. Let's run, you know, it's just the same thing over and over. Um, But I also knew based off of watching you play the game, Patrick, that uh, Joel looked different, that Ellie looked different talking with Dan about Ellie. Dan talked about uh, Ellie's looks probably a, I don't know, maybe six weeks ago and how he had, it was something that he had to get over or had to become comfortable with. And I I also like, if you look at Bella Ramsey, she's got a very stoic, steely, natural look to her. She doesn't have an emotional, like you can't look, you can look at her face and you could, you would almost think, Oh, she might be hard to talk to. Like they're just based off of looks alone. And then if you look at the, the actual game, the features on the girl in the game are far more kind of stereotypical, a little American girl, rounded nose, very cute, very kind of sweet. Bella Ramsey is none of, are, is none of those things. So that wasn't anything that I had to get over, but um, I also knew and experienced kind of the steely side of Bella Ramsey a little bit as, as an actor, even her playing Leanna Mormont in game of Thrones. It wasn't this soft. Oh, I'm a little girl like playing around. She was a similar character where she was steely and she was a leader and she had things to do. So she read that way to me, but I didn't have a hard time with her, nor did I have a hard time with Joel either. I'm a fan of Pedro Pascal. I also realized that in the, in the times that we're living right now, especially as it relates to media, Casting is up in the air. Like they're not casting things the way they used to. Five years ago, mostly everyone who was cast was probably white in in roles like these. No question about it. Things are really, really, really changing. And Pedro Pascal's casting was not a surprise to me at all, knowing that it's time to change the game. It's time to have representation of other cultures in lead roles. Thought it was a really great choice. I not seen like narcos i've not seen i've seen prospect with pedro pascal which was fantastic and he was great in it um i've seen a couple of other things mostly mandalorian so i didn't have a lot to go on in terms of what he was going to bring to the role but as he always does he brought his a game i was surprised i was delighted i thought he was great what's interesting about pedro pascal is if you've seen interviews with him he's a very funny jokey jovial guy he's not this macho stoic cold character which is tends to be what he plays which i find it ironic um but i really enjoyed everything and and uh there was nothing for me i mean i guess in terms of adaptations you know certainly i'll just talk about assassin's creed where you know you have michael fassbender in this lead role the costumes are great the settings are great it's produced really well. It's directed really well, but you kind of, you watch it and it ends and you're like, what was that even about? Like there's no emotional stakes in the movie. No one is even, even really that likable. And I think likability is important. Um, and, and I think it's even important to like antagonists 
in a, in a, in a way in films. Or you have to kind of see yourself or find parts of yourself in them. I didn't find any of that in Assassin's Creed or, again, Lara Croft or the other films that have been made. I think what was the the last film that was it was a, like a fantasy that was adapted into a live action, even though it was mostly CG. What was that? Where the guy has horns kind of coming out of his mouth and they're like monster looking things. I think, uh, Hal- no, no, it wasn't Halo. I have oh, seen Halo. Oh, yeah, there was Halo recently. Uh, Warcraft. Yeah, a, a Warcraft from like 10 yeah. years ago. No, yeah, yeah no, well, there's a World of Warcraft movie from like 20, thir- I don't know. Uh, uh, no, it was then. CG. It was all CG. It was not that well, long maybe ago. It's a, maybe it's a new one. Okay. Um. Anyways. I progress. Uh, having been disappointed with them, not because so much I thought, oh, this was a poor adaptation. I just thought it was poor storytelling. And that's really what you encounter a lot, where you have things that look good, but that aren't good. But this was really, really both. So uh, I, going in, epi- you know, second, third episode, I, there was nothing on my mind that was like, oh, this isn't working for me. It was firing on all cylinders from beginning to end. Yeah, well, and you guys have brought up other zombie shows before, and, you know, the creators are very careful to be like, eh, these are infected, not zombies, which, fine, that's a distinction you can make. But I will say that over the years that we've seen many, many different iterations of zombie shows, the kind of well-known secret about writing these shows well is that it's supposed to be about the humans, not about the zombies, right? It's the drama and the fear and the fighting amongst themselves and all of that. That is what's interesting. Zombies themselves aren't all that interesting. And so I think the walking dead kind of fell off for me because after the first second or uh, sorry, after the second or third season, um, again, they were repeating themselves and it was more about the zombies uh, or the human drama just kept kind of recycling with few exceptions. And that's just not interesting. And I think what makes this so exceptional as a story is like the director uh, and creator says, it's a story about love, about all of the wonderful and all of the horrible things that love makes us feel and do. And I think when you look at it from that perspective, um, you know, the action in the game really is driving the story and driving the characters. Like, yes, it's an action game, but you don't play The Last of Us because you're like, oh, it's going to be shooting guns and like all this awesome action. That's really not what it's about. It's about experiencing something that feels very real and realistic. I mean, when, uh, you know, when you don't make it in the game and you're, the character you're playing dies, it's like really impactful. It feels very real and the way things would kind of go black if that were to happen to you. And it's emotionally really impacting. And I think having that heart, I mean, we had this conversation many times as the episodes were being released. I remember Jamie Patrick and I certainly uh, talking about how it's the heart of the character that is there and the heart of the story that is there. So as they made changes and made different decisions for the medium, um, what was really important about the story and the characters was there. And I think they always kept close to that line and that's what helped them be really successful. I just want to jump in and then I'm, I'm going to hand over to Micah. That Warcraft movie was 2016. So it was, it was a little while ago, a little while ago. Not, not 10 years though. It was a hundred years ago, Jamie. <laughs> um, Yeah. Just to go off of what you are saying, Dan, what you are saying, Jamie, I, I was also a huge walking dead fan and I even stuck it out longer than Patrick did because 
I just like, I wanted that story to keep me going. You know what I mean? And it's what we look for. And it's what the last of us offers us that story about love in the face of the literal worst circumstances. And um, it's fascinating because the walking dead just really lost sight of it. And I denied it for such a long time because it was in the first season and a little bit into the second season, a story about people trying to um, sustain their humanity and sustain their love in, in like these terrifying and dire circumstances where humans are ripping each other apart. Zombies are ripping them apart. It, it's just, it's like a terrifying world and you're trying to maintain somewhat of um, an optimistic, hopeful, loving life. And The Last of Us is all about that and all about what love can make you do. And it's crazy to me that, um, I mean, I'm sure anyone listening to this has um, hopefully watched through the end of the show. So, you know, the the huge um, drama that happens in the very last episode and how conflicting that can be, that decision that Joel makes on behalf of Ellie, basically for all mankind, um, and how you as the person viewing it feel when you try to think of yourself in Joel's position and what you would do if given the choice between your loved one under anesthe- uh, anesthesia on the table, um, likely not to wake up, what would you do? So... That's where The Last of Us is separate from other like quote unquote zombie or post-apocalyptic shows because it's it's not it could be written under almost any other circumstances and it would still be as powerful to me because it's talking about, well, what would you do for the the one that you love the most? And that's why I think it really endures and survives. <laughs> anyway, um, another thing I wanted to talk about, um, was- which I think is. I know. I'm, I'm the I was going to say that was like a mom joke. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was a mom kidding. joke. That was good. Endurance survive. Good. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think it's really interesting to see this show arise after our own pandemic. And um, I remember, Patrick, when you and I and your sister Claire, we were playing The Last of Us for the first time after the pandemic. And <laughs> I joked that, oh, too soon. But it kind of was, you know, um, especially with episode one where you see the outbreak day and um, the pure chaos and the fear and the terror. And everyone had been going about their day like nothing was going to change. And all of a sudden the world ended. And it was just it's different to watch that and to play the game if you're playing the game in our perspective now, um, having lived through obviously not cordyceps or anything remotely resembling something like that, but we did experience something that shut down the world. So I think the context is even more powerful these days. Yeah. And and this was also, of course, made during the pandemic. It was filmed between the summer of 2021 and the summer of 2022 for a full year, primarily in Alberta, Canada. So this is something that not only reacts to the pandemic and is informed by, although it was, of course, the game was written bef- well before COVID came out. Um, COVID came out, like it premiered, but like well before the advent of COVID nineteen, six years before it. Um, like the 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 game feels so prescient, as does the television show, for what that felt like. And what I love is that again, 
when they created the show, they leaned into that in a way that wasn't to my ear too on the nose or obvious. Like I kind of went into this expecting it to feel a little more like a COVID commentary, but it's really not like it really, it kind of gets that out of the way early. What I love though, is that first episode to me is so strong. Like, of course you have the scene in the beginning of the talk show, this Dick Cabot esque talk show, which was new for this um, series. And that was like a scene that they had had kicking around and they didn't really know if they were going to use it or not. They didn't really, weren't really happy with the way it was opening. So they kind of stuck it and they're like, we're going to stick with this and we're going to put this at the beginning of the whole, the whole series. And what I love is that it signals to the viewer, especially the viewer who's played the game, that this is not this is not just going to be a recreation of the video game. Like from the very beginning, we're like, right. okay, this is going to be new, right? Mm -hmm. And what I love is it just, it leans into just a little bit current events with like the world getting warmer and things. And it kind of, it just, it speaks somewhat through the fourth wall to us sitting here in 2023 watching it, but not enough that it's distracting. And then what I love is that the beginning of the, of the Last of Us the video game is my favorite opening other than Dead Space 2 for any video game ever written. I think that the first like 15 to 25 minutes of The Last of Us is like a masterclass in how you start anything because it starts and this is kind of, you know, for Jamie's benefit and for other people, I, I guess you, you watch this play it, but for anybody who hasn't played it before, the game starts with Sarah waking up. Basically it, it's, it's, it's her first, you know, she has a couple of scenes with her dad, her dad leaves and then it's basically her waking up, going downstairs to see why he didn't come back on his birthday yet, like, you know, to check on him. And the first indication that something's wrong is like the phones are ringing too much and like the news is like really loud and there's like this distant explosion and it's like clear that something's going on. And then we just have this just amazingly terrifying moment. And I've played this game, I don't know, seven times now or something. And like, I still, I, I get, I get chills when the neighbor breaks through the glass. It's like such a shocking way to start a video game off. And uh, the show tops that to me, like the way the world unravels in the first 35 to 45 minutes of the first episode is just like extraordinary with the planes crashing and shit, like all of this sense of chaos. And then what I love is that then they immediately for the rest of the series dial back the violence a lot and the death toll a lot. And they dial back the like the visible uh, like loss of life quite a lot and they make it quieter so that when things happen from there on, they're really impactful because one thing that the last of us does so well as a video game is that death, even though it happens a lot, always has a price to it. And the last of us part two really is a meditation on that. But in the first one, you know, even then it's like the, the, it, to kill somebody takes a lot of effort. Like you don't have very much ammunition. So you have to decide if you're going to actually use it. You really want to sneak if you can, but you can't sometimes and you have to go to combat. And a lot of the time it's, it's fist to face combat. It's just brutal, you know? And we get a real sense of that in this TV show. A great example of this, what, which I love in the adaptation is what happens in the game in Pittsburgh, but here happens in Kansas city, Missouri is uh, this confrontation with these these hunters or this like faction that's occupied the city. So in the video game, that whole sequence is like very bombastic and there's just combat everywhere and there's Humvees, you know, rolling around with 50 cal machine guns. And it's just like, it's just this huge like bombastic set piece where you're sneaking, but there's like all this shit going on. It's so um, difficult. I died so many times. Yeah, it's difficult. There's big set pieces. It's, it's very much like that's the most kind of action forward part of the video game. 
But in the, and like and it starts with the same thing, right? Where Joel walks and drives into a trap. Basically, they're driving Bill's truck. There's this diversion set up. This guy's in the road, and then they they you know crash into him. He goes into a parking garage, and then he has in the game a shootout with like all of these enemies everywhere. But in this one, it's really just two guys, you know. And like, and he can't even get a read on really where they are. And then a third guy sneaks around the back because he didn't hear him because his hearing's not great. And he essentially gets killed. Like if Ellie weren't there to save him, that would have been it. And he would have been killed by a child. We find out this guy who's like 17 years old. Um, And that would have been the end of the protagonist of the, the action hero of this show. Right. So what I love is that violence is taken much more seriously and much more literally in this show where it's. Joel is not just this tank walking around mowing people down. But then again, at the end of this first series, first season, we do see him become that tank that we know from the video game. And it's really shocking because we haven't known him in that capacity because most of his interactions, his violent interactions with people have been so scaled back. Um, So again, violence is something that I really feel like Neil Druckmann has a great, uh, ear for an understanding of and there's a lot of things in his in his past that we'll get to when we get around to part two that speak to that which i don't want to get into right now but i think that he never lost sight of that like this never felt like it should be another left for dead zombie squad warfare clone you know and the show feels that way too it feels like the violence in the show is earned and it has a price to it and that is what sets it apart so much from the walking dead among other things. But I want to say one more thing about The Walking Dead, which I do think is something worth talking about because it does share a lot of similarities, right? Like it is a horror forward, you know, marquee level primetime, you know, show uh, that premiered during like, I mean, Sunday night is like the time to do like event television, right? So like The Walking Dead was always on, on it was a Sunday night show, if I remember correctly, when it was on cable forever ago. And we used to have viewing parties for The Walking Dead. Like Micah and I would go to our friend's house and we would go, we would go and our kids would play together in the back and we would watch, we would make cocktails and watch The Walking Dead. And we did that for years. Like that was, that was our routine because it was a show that even though I didn't like it anymore, I was like, yeah, it's The Walking Dead. Like it's, it's like what we do. It's event television that we come together. Cause like, who knows, is Glenn going to survive this, you know, fake out death? I don't know. Let's go get together and find out. What I love is that like, this was that again. I mean, we had physical in-person viewing parties for every episode of this with my sister, with other people, with Micah's family. Like we had people come over, we cooked, we had like a whole party every single time. And what I loved is that every single Sunday night, my phone was fucking buzzing off the hook. It doesn't have a hook because it's a cell phone, but you get what I mean. Like people texting me about it. Like people like my, my cousin, Joey, like who, today's actually his birthday. So happy birthday, Joey. Um, like, you know, he would call me crying after the episode. Like, I couldn't believe it, you know, and, and that I haven't had that experience with the show since The Walking Dead. We're just like everybody that, that I knew was in love with it. And we were just sharing that experience together. So uh, it was it was a really unifying experience. And I'm so glad that it was a meaningful one as well, that it wasn't just event television because it's like stick around for next week. It was like there was a, an important narrative at the heart of it that we needed to experience together. What I also loved about the show is, uh, in terms of the tone of it, 
if we're talking about The Walking Dead, there are some very specific things that are different, even though there are some themes that are similar. But what I love about um, The Last of Us is that it you can feel this danger of society. Like you can feel like you're not safe. It doesn't feel like you're safe in this in this world that everyone's living. But also, what is attractive to me about The Last of Us is that. In some ways, I feel like some of that reality is happening now where it's kind of what's going on in the world is every man for himself. There's, you know, there's this happening over here. There's this happening over here. Um, it feels like something we're experiencing now it, and it's in our own way. So it feels like it's really got its finger on the pulse of where we are, maybe in our psychological space, having gone through a pandemic, having not, we are not the same after it. And, uh, not just a pandemic, but everything else that's going on in the world, whether it's a war and political political things going on, all sorts of things. But it just felt really tonally um, urgent to me. It felt like uh, they really tapped into what it is what it would be like to live in that space, to live in a space where there has been fallout because of this infection or whatever you want to call it, uh, and what life after that is going to be. And that's something that I never saw in the walking dead. And even uh, the whole opening where you have that talk show and really, really well done. Just really, I mean, even just the, the period, the clothing, everything was perfect. But then there's another scene later on where uh, I think is it, is it in Bangkok or it's somewhere no, in, it's it's some, in it's Malaysia, Singapore, right? Jakarta, Jakarta. Jakarta. Right. Oh, okay. Indonesia. Okay. And they're talking to, you know, and of course you have the military involved and they find that woman who is an expert on whatever. She's, she's a mycologist. Okay. And they're talking about it. And then she eventually says, you need to bomb the city. Like, it's really like, she goes, you need to go to your family. And the only way that you're going to fight this is to, you know, bomb the city and, you know, do the best that you can do. And that to me was terrifying. That's one of the most terrifying moments in the show because she's saying essentially there's no hope. And I never got that in the walking dead. You never saw a bigger picture. Like where did this infection come from? Who's working on it? What's going on? Is there a patient zero? Like the science fiction part of it that really interests me, the walking dead never covered. It was just always, again, we said it all before the same thing over and over and over. And the last of us really offered me and probably the rest of the viewers, a look into a situation like this in a very realistic way in terms of something like this happening, who it's affecting. And then of course, um, Ellie is, you know, Ellie is an anomaly where she's been infected, but she's not infected. So she's a possible cure. She's a walking cure. Um, so I, this, this show really, it was giving me everything that I want from a show like this. The science, the bigger picture in terms of what's going on in the world. It's not just this, oh, this is happening in America because America is the, only, the most important place in the world. It was showing us all of these other or a few other places, which I thought is really important. America isn't the only country going through this this infection it's the entire world and we need to see how the world is reacting and that's so important and again it was they just executed it brilliantly yeah it was interesting watching it with a 
biologist in my house because Jackie, you know, has a pretty good background in genetics and science and it has its pros and cons. I think the science of the show is pretty good, um, especially the way they open it. Um, I have some issues with the ending, which we can talk about later, but I remember Jackie being really impressed with the beginning because the entire conversation they're having from the panel uh, to the mycologist later it makes the infection and what has happened to tr- actually create this apocalypse somewhat plausible. Uh, cordyceps is a real fungus. It really does infect uh, mostly insects the way that it's described. And if it were to be able to evolve to infect the species of mushrooms, they're very host specific. So like each cordyceps infects one specific like ant species for example Um, but if they were able to infect mammals and one of them got a taste for us you know who knows something like this could happen uh so i really love that uh i want to talk a little bit about the diversity and inclusion in the show because i think that's really interesting and from my perspective i haven't quite seen it done like this and the creator talks about it a little bit but i'll pass that off to you guys in a second um and so that was cool i was like oh cool they're showing a woman mycologist like she might be the only woman mycologist at her level in that entire like region of her country for example um I, I, I didn't love the line where she, I get for drama why she said like bomb the city, but I was like, I'm pretty sure a scientist would go to other options first, like cordon off the city. Like, you know, if it was a military general, I could see it, but it, it, you know, it, it increased the drama of the scene, which I get. Um, but yeah, I, I think, uh, I, I, I kind of, you guys comment on that too, but I wanted to move a little bit into the fact that this show does, diversity in a way that at least for me made me feel like it wasn't pandering or making it the obvious goal of the show it just was showing people as real people and it's interesting because while the two main characters in the game are depicted as white uh the show has plenty of diversity as or sorry the game has plenty of diversity as well and you see characters of different races all over the place they change some of those dynamics in the show Um, but I thought it was really inclusive and the writers talked about that and they were like, yeah, we want people to be able to see themselves no matter what they look like in these characters. Um, and you know, we can really only touch on the LGBTQ part of it a little bit because it's, it's one part of this game, but there are other characters that are brought into the second game that we can't talk about. Sorry. The show is what we're talking about now. Again, I found that to be the whole episode with Riley and Riley and Ellie's relationship. And if you listen to the podcast, them talking about how they wrote it, remembering what it's like to be in middle school and not knowing if someone likes you and kind of, you know, beating around the bush. And then they say, now on top of it, imagine that you're coming to terms with your own sexuality, which is different from most of the people around you. And you don't even know, not just if this person likes you, but Does this person have your same sexuality? Are you going to lose a friend as well if you make a move or disclose something to them that is kind of a secret for you? And adding all those layers to it made that episode so much more impactful for me. And as well as the Frank and Bill episode. And it made me think about things, even having lots of gay friends and lots of close friends who are gay and like talking about these issues, these issues in life in general. It made me really look at things from a very intimate perspective. And it was something that, I'd gotten a taste of in the game, but I feel like we got a really 
a much more intimate view of it in the show. And I was really impressed by that, but I'm curious to hear how you guys thought or what you guys thought about that. Well, I think uh, we have to talk about the Bill and Frank episode. Um, it's probably, uh, and I keep saying all of these superlatives here, but I really do stand behind them. Um, I'll fight anybody who argues with me. It literally is one of the most beautiful love stories I have ever seen Bill and Frank, um, which is as any gamer who has played the last of us knows it's a huge departure from the game. Um, It's a huge departure, but it's also such a courageous and beautiful choice um, to give Bill and Frank an actual life together. Um, And it's, it's so fascinating. We talk about the reality and the consequences of the violence of this post-apocalyptic world that they're depicting. And yes, it cordyceps decimates the entirety of human society. However, there is still what, what makes the last of us so powerful to me is that there is still that um, pursuit of love and contentedness and finding that in some, another person. And you are set up with this cantankerous loner, with a don't tread on me flag and you just know this guy when you see bill for the first time like he is that prepper who nobody really talks to who is way happier alone and then you find him just opening up when his soulmate arrives and it's just i feel like it was such a gift to get this relationship with bill and frank versus In the game, it's so tragic because we never get to see what they were like in the game. We see that same Bill who is very aggressive, very like, very much, this is my town and you guys are just passing through. I'm better off alone, which we do see in the, in the show. But, um, in the game, you kind of see Frank has decided to end things and he leaves and he ends up dying. So you never get to see what it was like when there were good times with Bill and Frank. So this show gives us the gift of a of, of very, uh, in my limited opinion, real look into a relationship between these two um, characters that's just absolutely stunningly beautiful. And um, I just feel like so lucky that we get that show to to express that so that people can see themselves in it. And it's it's so important like the last of us does have a lot of lgbtq characters in it has a lot of diverse ethnicities and races and it's just as a person who enjoys the game and the show i just i just love it like i can't say enough good things about that and i think that bill and frank their relationship was just so special and beautiful and it almost felt like um not like a treat, but like we got to see real human beings living a whole life together in a post-apocalyptic world. And I have never seen anything like that. It was it was just astounding. And again, I think part of it comes down to having the right voices in the conversation a lot. Um, when For that episode in particular, which is my favorite episode of television ever, although Neil and Craig are both straight men, they 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 made sure that they had a lot of people who were involved in the production who were gay, give them direct 
story help with this to make sure that it felt authentic. And I think that that shows it shows when you include people who have an experience that you don't have in the storytelling of the story that they're invested in. Of course, Murray Bartlett is also gay, which I think helps quite a bit too. And the director, I think, too, of that episode. And the guy that directed that episode mm-hmm. was, yeah, and 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 many other people who were involved with it. So so again, it's about having the right voices in the conversation, but. Um, I do think it's about more than their like their their orientation, and obviously you do. I'm not saying that anybody's saying it's not, but what I love is that in the game that sequence is really like his Bill's sexuality in the game is like one step away from being a joke. You know, I mean, Bill in the game is played as basically comic relief. And Micah and I we were looking at the art book the other day. Bill in the art book, his, his he was like super morbidly obese originally. He was like just this like lumbering like buffoon with this like stomach coming out of his shirt, you know. And they tone yeah, that down a little bit. The, the back and forth between him and Ellie in the game, like that smart assery of Ellie, but we we didn't get to have between the two of them only in the game. Right, because he's 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 basically like funny, and in the game, uh, you know, he's obviously not as as huge as he was in the concept art, but he's still like heavy, and Ellie's making fun of him for it the whole time, and like Bill's just this cantankerous guy who reads you know male pornographic magazines, and Ellie you know makes fun of of him for it, and his relationship with Frank in the game, of course, is like the is an antithetical to what we get in the show, because for anybody who hasn't played the game yet, the, the only indication we have that there was something there is this note that was left. I mean, we, we see so Bill is disturbed by seeing Frank in the in the house that they go into. And he says he was my partner, which could be taken a couple different ways, you know. And then there's a note that Frank had written to Bill that is just vindictive and angry and spiteful. And it says, you know, like you, you, you can never see past yourself. You can never give me a life that was worth living. You can only see your own needs. Just this like really vitriolic letter. There's basically a suicide note the way I read it. And of course, in the game, Joel has the option to hand it to Bill or to not hand it to Bill, which again is just a great example of the moral, the beautiful moral gray area that they give. I mean, like what video game does that, you know, where you have the option to show somebody a note that was written to them or not. And depending on what you do, the game plays slightly differently. Uh, I always have to give it to Bill. I don't know why I just I feel like he needs to know. But anyway, and then it's like that, and then it's they're driving away in Bill's truck, and Bill's very much still alive and still in his in Lincoln, and Ellie's just making fun of how big the guy's dick is in the magazine and saying the pages are stuck together and throws it out the window. So like it takes this thing in the game that's very surface level and um, you know, borderline comical and makes it into this like just just love story for the ages. I mean, it's one of the great episodes of TV that we're probably ever gonna see. I think it's just an amazing achievement. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's why it's my favorite episode of the whole, the whole series. And I don't want to, I want to make sure Jamie has a moment to weigh in on that as well. But I also want to say though, that the left behind content, of course, is a really interesting case study in that as well. And Dan was mentioning this earlier. So for those who haven't played the games left behind is a standalone, uh, separate chapter of the game that was released a few years after it came out that gives background into what Ellie had been doing immediately before the events of the last of us part one. And that's where we get the story with Riley. We get the story in the mall. We see, you know, how Ellie got bit. 
that is a beautiful little self-contained story that, you know, I didn't know if they were going to include it or not. And then it became clear that they were because of certain production details. And I was like, I wonder if this is going to feel like it fits tonally with the rest of it. And what I love is that it does and it doesn't. I love that it it does what Stranger Things tried to do in the second season, in my opinion, where there's like one episode that's kind of like out in left field a little bit. And it doesn't feel like it to me to, I mean, we, Jamie and I have talked about this before, but like, to, I, I really don't like that episode of stranger things very much. Cause it just feels like, so kind of like what the hell's going on with this one to me. What I love is that it was, it felt like there was such a reason for it to be included because we needed to see a fuller version of Ellie by that point in the arc of the series. So Ellie, like it, it's, it's one thing to play a game for 18 hours and to get to know a character really well and to fight alongside her for that whole time. You, you, you can't help but be attached to, you know, this fictional person you're playing with because like you've been protecting and fighting with somebody for that much time. But in the show, like they had the, you know, Bill and Frank episode, they had, uh, you know, the whole first episode that kind of sets everything up. So like the screen time for Joel and Ellie really isn't very much until you get later in the series. But right before that, you have this little vignette of Ellie where we see a part of her that we hadn't really had access to yet. And we see some of the reasons why she's so closed off and so angry. And it just like fleshes out her character in such a beautiful way so that when we come back to the narrative then and she saves Joel with the penicillin and they get out of there, we have this whole like, like we have access to Ellie's inner life now. And the rest of the show is going to play differently because of that. So I just thought that was such a great, those are two episodes that are definitely side episodes from the main continuity of the show and that they're kind of meditations, but they're both like, they're there for such beautiful reasons because they give us glimpses into the greater humanity going on. And and it's the story saying it's worth paying attention to that. So like, we're going to put the guns down for a few minutes and we're going to just tell a beautiful love story for the right reasons. Jamie, what did you think? Um, I really enjoyed that episode as well. I think uh, it is one of the best episodes of the show. At the same time, I also felt like I'm interested in what Joel and Ellie are doing. This is this is interesting, but I prefer the main story. Um, so knowing that, like, know, like it's an amazing episode for sure, but I also felt like it took away time from Joel and Ellie, and I would rather have just focused on them. But focusing on that episode for a minute I, I what i love about the the diversity and inclusion and all of that stuff in this show is it's not heavy-handed it's not virtue signaling it's not look mm. we're get you know what i mean it's none of those things right. and we're so like i'm i'm a woke person i believe in that word i think it's a great word but we're we're in a world right now where there's a lot of faux woke things happening i and uh, i'll use the name disney disney does it where they're they use um, performative wokeness people. yes totally totally performative and they use lgbt people as window dressing and it's very clear like we're gay or you mm. know hey look a lesbian couple you know or whatever it is or hey they're, they're non-binary and they're very obtuse about the language and the dialogue and um star trek discovery is very obtuse about that as well just over the top it just completely derails um the story they're telling with the last of us it doesn't derail it at all and what you meet are people because i think if the point is if you can get to know people as people you wind up not caring about who they love you wind up not caring about the color of their skin and the last of us got that pitch perfect and i do love uh, what i also love about bill and frank is 
which also makes me think of Frankenbeans for whatever reason. <laughs> uh, what I love about them as people are that they weren't stereotypes. They weren't like lispy or or stereotypical gay people that you see in on film or in shows where they're overly flamboyant. They're just people. They're just guys um, who happen to uh, love and fall in love with people of the same sex. And I love that. I love that um, representation as someone who feels similar to that, who feels like, I, like for me, I've always said like being gay is the least interesting thing about me. And I feel like in those characters, I met similar people where like they, I, I don't even know if they'd even use that term. They're like, Hey, we just love each other. Like that's just who we are. And I love, I just love how they represented them. And you never see that, or it's rare that you see that in a show or a film. Very, very rare. And I love that they also didn't really go heavy handed with Ellie's love interest. Like you could tell with Riley that there was a, a crush there, but oftentimes with young kids that happens. Sometimes, you know, people are when, when they're going through puberty and when they're exploring life, sometimes they might have feelings for people of the same sex. I have a lot of straight friends who kind of messed around when they were younger with people of the same sex or they had something, but then as they grew up, things kind of came out of it. But I love that with Ellie, they weren't saying she is a lesbian. They're just showing you her life. And that's it. They're not even making a commentary on it. They're just showing you what she experienced and they're not categorizing it. They're not labeling it. They're just showing it to you and we're moving on. And I thought it was just beautiful. And I think this is how you represent people uh, in the LGBTQ plus community and people of other ethnicities where you see or where they're showcasing their through the writing, they're showcasing their skin color first or they're showcasing right. uh, the what country they're from first, as opposed to no showcase their humanity first or lack of humanity. And, uh, I, I, have always, I've always been someone who's can find myself in the bad guy sometimes, not like find myself like, Hey, I'm bad, but like there's something that they're missing or there's, there's a part of them that also needs to be loved, or there's a reason why they are the way that they are. And even, um, in this show with, uh, the character, uh, the priest or the pastor guy at the, second to the last episode David. i can't remember his name david uh there was something that was familiar about him even though he ended up being a horrible human being um you wanted to believe him it, i i had no idea who he was and i know he wasn't a, a a pastor in the game um but i wanted to really believe his words in the beginning and when you first meet him and he's a little bit protective of ellie's like no okay give her why don't you go back and get her some medicine and um Let's take care of her and be respectful. I really, really wanted that to be true, but I also felt like there was a genuine, there was a spark of genuine kindness in that very awful man. And it was probably uh, something, you know, a, a true part of who he was. Uh, and again, you don't see facets of, of the antagonists. You don't see facets of antagonists presented like you presented like that in film. You just don't or shows uh, not very often. And I, again, I think, um, everyone behind this show just knocked it out of the park time after time after time after time. There was no point in this show where I felt like I'm bored or, okay, let's move on from this. I never felt that once, even in things I absolutely adore other things that I adore. There's moments where I'm like, okay, let's move on from this. Let's, let's, let's go. Let's go. I'd never felt that one time. And that is a triumph. Yeah. I, I mean, 
I actually think what you see with David is his ability to manipulate people. That's what you're actually seeing. It's not true kindness. It's just him pulling people's strings to see what he can get out of them. But um, I wanted to make one last comment on Bill and Frank's relationship. I actually found, and I didn't know the background of like making Bill fatter and kind of uh, the design of the character initially, but how he ended up in the game and the dialogue that they do use, I actually found both depictions really fascinating. And I loved both of them because neither stereotype the person. Again, you don't get a lot of Frank in the game. Um, and I'm glad we got to see something a little more positive and you got to see them loving each other and see their relationship. But what I mean is Frank's sexuality is alluded to only after you leave the town uh, and Ellie finds that magazine in the truck beforehand, the whole partner letter. It's not a hundred percent explicitly obvious what is going on. You kind of put it together later. And what that did for me is make me realize like, oh, right, here's a gay guy where that part of his personality or his sexuality is not something that comes forward at all. He just kind of comes off as a cantankerous asshole who wants to be left alone and is really good with his hands at, you know, making booby traps and like rigging this whole town. And he's a survivalist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And then you just get a superficial hint at that part of his life later on. And I was like, Oh, right. Cause gay people, are just like everybody else. They come in all kinds of shades and shapes and and their personalities are just as different as anybody else's. And it was the opposite way to show you that than the way they did it in the show where they actually let you into the intimacy and let you see that um, these people are just in love and care about each other, etc. So they were two polar opposite ways of showing a character's sexuality Um and I really liked both of them. I, it's amazing how this show has the ability to show you different facets of a character or a relationship and they can change things and be different. And yet they're all teaching you something about that person and they're all plausible. Like the Bill and Frank from the show fit in with the Bill and Frank from the game. It's just that you don't see that part in the game. So I really love the way they, again, walked that line and were kind of doing two things at the same time. It's really fascinating how they were able to write that. I think what you're touching on, Dan, is that even though there are some pretty big differences in the adaptation, the heart of the game is very much in the show. Um, Like there's, there's a different, for example, in the pilot episode, you get to go to school with Sarah. You're more like you're with Sarah for longer in the day. Whereas in the game, it's just at night. It's just late. So, but at the end of the day, you're with Sarah and then you're with Joel. And that's the heart of that opening that you love so much, Patrick, and that I love so much. And you know, what is really wonderful that we get to see as people who love the game. There are so many just, thrilling little easter eggs for us like the first time that joel and ellie of the show come out in their like signature outfits joel with the plaid and ellie with that maroon shirt with the palm trees on it there's like the show gives so much to its audience that it's it's wonderful it's it's such a great show and it stands alone for people who have never played the game but for people who did play the game it's like yes you still get these 
little nods like we know that you have been there and that you've played the game and this is for you this little this little nuggets for you or this little line or exchange is exactly the same as it is in the game because craig is like no that's that's how i want it to be here too because it's important to hit that same note so what i think is part of the triumph of this show is that even though there are some pretty big differences the heart of it is there because the people who made it cared about the story and it it just shows like it they don't have to talk about it if there weren't if there wasn't a podcast that was a companion to the show you'd still be able to see how much care they put into it and how much they wanted to stay true to these characters that have become so beloved um and leading off of that like when they do bring Troy Baker and Ashley Johnson into the room it is electric when you see Troy Baker on the set for the first time knowing who he is and seeing him play James and get killed by Elliot you're like oh <laughs> so oh my cool. gosh it's so <laughs> crazy or and I don't know I got chills when I heard Ashley Johnson as Anna in the forest running away going oh fuck like it just sounds like Ellie you're like oh my god there's Ellie um, and when she ends up being Ellie's mom, I broke down in tears because she, it's almost like she, Ashley Johnson, who put so much of herself into this role, um, is also like still putting so much into Ellie because she has, like, she brings Ellie into the world in real life by creating that character, but in the show by literally birthing the baby that's Ellie. Um, and there's just like, there's just this intangible magic um, from that care and love that every single person seems to have put into this show. And you can tell with the acting, you can tell with the writing, and oh my God, you can tell with the costumes and the sets. They built so many sets from the ground up. It's incredible. And they did so many practical effects. It's just phenomenal. And they had people who... Did the original clicker noises come back to make those, you know, iconic sounds that drive the people who played the game crazy and they just wake up the people who haven't played the game. So it's just like everybody who put in this work just cared so much about making it right. It just does. It just happened. So I will just continue to wax poetic about this forever. Yeah. I mean, talk about genius casting, casting. Ashley Johnson as Ellie's mother, Anna was just, just made so much sense and it was the perfect place for her. And I'm, I'm so glad that they did that. It's crazy how much Ashley Johnson looks like Bella Ramsey. Like they look like they're related. And the, I didn't know that when I was watching the show that she was the voice of Ellie. And then I find I'm like, this is like Providence. Like this is, that the fact that they that the woman who originated this role looks just like or similar to like the nose the 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 forehead the architecture of their face mm -hmm. they look like mother and daughter or at least sisters um I, I just it was genius genius there's more casting also like uh, the actor who plays Tommy in the video game of course plays Perry in this and does a great job with that too there's so many people that were involved in the game and just going back to some of the easter eggs for a second like there are you know death animations in this that you recognize from the game there's the bloater ripping Tommy's hit well, that's Perry in the game in the movie in the show I can't say it Perry uh ripping Perry's head open you know you have Joel boosting up 
um, Ellie, you know, to get up. It's just it's just a lot of things that if you play the game. Um, and maybe the biggest, you can't forget Merle Dandridge as Marlene. Yeah, that's the right. Original voice of Marlene plays Marlene in the freaking show. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So let's uh, before we wrap this up, let's talk about the finale. Uh, I was still on our trip, so I had to wait two, three extra days. Uh, in fact, the last few episodes, our internet connection wasn't great, so I couldn't watch them on a Sunday. And so I couldn't wait to come home and watch it. Um, and I, I was a little sensitive to the fact that I could see it was only 45 or 50 minutes. And I was like, oh man, I feel like emotionally there's so much left in this story to really do it that fast. And of course, we have the moment with the giraffe, which is a beautiful moment. And I'm sure for all of us, for everyone who's played the game, one of their favorite moments, uh, especially because in the game, it's a moment where you can kind of sit and watch the giraffes as long as you want. And you decide when to pull away from it. It's not an animation, which is a really cool way to do it. Um, and it was having seen my first live giraffes only like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it was really cool to see that on screen and know that they used a real giraffe um, and how that all worked out. But um, yeah, I wanted to pass the ball around on the finale and what you guys experience was with it. And before we get into it, just to say that they did use a real giraffe, like you're saying, and you can see on the behind the scenes featurette that they put out. They actually, they actually constructed this entire blue screen set around the giraffe just so that they could get an actual living giraffe in the building. And and that, just briefly before we get back into the last episode, something that I want to touch on is a consistent theme throughout that Micah was mentioning is how well they utilized practical in-camera stuff and real set building with really judicious use of VFX Yeah, in a way that's so artfully married mm -hmm. throughout the whole series. There are VFX sequence shots. Almost every single frame of this has VFX in it because they had to age things and weather them. And you can almost never tell. And when you can tell, it's kind of like, well, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a pass because the rest of it has been so great. But for all like the, the expansive overhead drone shots, it just feels like it's, it's so real to the smallest details like Anna Torv in that behind the scenes feature at who as Tess was fucking amazing by the way she was I mean we're obviously we're gonna have another episode so we'll talk more about this but she was mentioning how while she was crawling on her hands and knees in the sewers she noticed that they had put fake rice uh, rice rice uh and, and to represent mouse droppings on the floor or like sesame seeds or something so that even to these these you know borderline microscopic details the verisimilitude is it's so well maintained throughout there the it is thing. but yeah but dan let's get back <laughs> around to uh to the finale yeah well, well just for a second i wanted to mention the giraffe it's funny because we both uh jackie and i both watched the finale and watched the giraffe scene and i was like there was something a little uncanny valley about the giraffe like i guess they used cgi but it wasn't like perfect whatever and after i watched the making of it and realized they used a real giraffe i realized that it kind of just looks like a muppet because giraffes just kind of look like muppets like that's just what they look like <laughs> they got this goofy mouth and stuff i was like oh yeah it's just what a giraffe looks like <laughs> but uh yeah i wanted to ask you guys uh kind of what you thought of the ending and what, how that leaves you going into the rest of the story and waiting for the next, uh, the next season. One thing that I thought was really, really important. And I too, Dan was a little nervous when I saw that it was only going to be about 45 minutes. Um, it made me a little freaked out, but one thing that I thought was really, really important um, was Joel's trip getting from point A to point B in the hospital, that part playing the game is 
clearly like it's the hardest part that you have to play through because it's the end of the game. It's like a culmination of all these skills you've been honing as you play it. And um, the first time you ever play the game and you have to act as Joel in that operating room, it should feel sickening to do what you have to do, which is to take lives of innocent people and snatch Ellie away. And I thought, okay, like they really have to ensure that they get this right. And I think the sequence where Joel Joel is going through and just straight up murdering everybody, um, they worked so hard to make the music and the, for lack of a better word, vibe of that sequence to be so devastating. It's so sad if you if you like truly pay attention to the music in that part. It's not like, you know, drums and like action and fast, loud music or even suspenseful. It's sad. And then they linger over the bodies that he kills. So we really get to have that weight on our shoulders of, oh, my God, he really is dissociating and making this choice right now. And I think it was incredibly impactful the way they pulled that off. I wasn't sure that was maybe one of the moments that I wasn't sure if they could get that truly right. And I believe that they did. Um, another thing I did like to touch on, uh, I could I could just seriously talk about for hours because I literally just thought of another thing I want to say. But more importantly, I really um, I thought that the choice to give Joel a moment to talk about his scar and the bullet that he tried to give himself was a departure from the game that was incredibly powerful. And I really like that they didn't make it this all of a sudden Joel is super eloquent and he knows exactly what to say to Ellie in this moment. He still is struggling to talk to her, struggling to say things. But even in that, like that very simple dialogue that isn't even finished in some parts, it's so powerful. And the message is so clear. You saved me, actually, Ellie. It wasn't time. It was you. And the fact that she picks up on it right away, it just, it solidifies their relationship. And you know, going forward that these two are connected forever. And I just found that to be so powerful. Yeah, that line, which is not in the game, punched me in the stomach so fucking hard. It took my breath away. I'm going to cry again. When he looks at her and he says, it wasn't time that did it. That's like, like, what a great, what a great fucking line that is. And and the way that Pedro delivers that too, like he just, he just communicates everything that's happening in that moment. And part of why The Last of Us is such a great thing, whether it's the game or the or the show, is that it creates space for moments like that to happen, you know, where like those amazing things that happen once in your lifetime and they just they come out like that 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 for Joel, like that was the moment his his watch started working again, you know, in in a figurative sense. Um and I just, I just love it so much. And I love how that sets up what's about to happen in the hospital in such a meaningful way. Because the thing is that to buy what happens, you have to buy the love that he has for Ellie. And the love that he has for Ellie is dangerous. And that's so important to realize because the love that, I mean, as Micah and I have said many times, like I would have not hesitated to kill everybody in that hospital in a second for my kids, like not even a second. And I hate that about myself. But I, I would have murdered every single person in there, and that and that's something that like no other no other thing I've ever experienced has made me ask that question of myself. 
you know, like I've never considered if I would be, if I would kill somebody who was otherwise innocent for endangering the life of my child and playing through this game and watching the show, I realized that I would. And that's like a, that's a very scary thing to realize about yourself. And I think that, um, by leaning into things like that, they're really communicating something important, which is that we live in a society that always venerates and and holds love up as this perfect thing, which it is. I mean, it is the most perfect thing in the universe, but it's also it's also the reason wars have been fought. That's the thing that's so important that we forget about. Like people don't go to war because they hate each other. They go to war because they love things that they're trying to protect. You know, that, that like, that's the thing that's so fucking scary about it. And that's the only thing that saves and destroys the world. And so I think um, that's why Joel's journey is so important. And I want to say also, and this is specific to Pedro's performance, which I think is, has been overshadowed a little bit by Bella Ramsey's in, in some ways, because hers was just like so amazing towards the end, but his was so great too. And I think it's partly because he does not fall into the trap of making Joel a hero because Joel is not a hero. And that's so hard to, to pull off, you know, because you want him to be in, in the game. There's more of a sense of him being straight up heroic because I, I think you don't really see much of the bad things that he's done. There's not much time spent meditating on that. Um, you know, also because you're playing as him, you just sort of put yourself in this like heroic, like I'm going to, I'm going to save things. Of course, by the end of it, you you are forced to look at the things that you've done as Joel and realize, oh my God, maybe that wasn't as heroic as I thought it was because of Ellie's final line, which I'm going to get to in one second. But watching the show, like there was not a moment where you mistake Joel for a heroic person. I mean, when he is torturing those guys in the basement of that house, he's fucking smiling when he's breaking the guy's kneecap with a knife. Like he he has a look on his face that is not like he's regretting this it is a look of like this is what it takes this is what i'm willing to sacrifice for my love and i don't fucking care about it I, you know what i mean he dehumanizes them in that moment and when he's going through the hospital he doesn't look regretful at all about what he's doing it's not like he's gleeful about it but he as micah said he has dissociated and we hear that in the sound design because of course the sound is muted it sounds like it's underwater so we hear you know for example casings falling on the ground and it just is this like distant it's like 30 feet away from him you know it sounds like even though it's right at his feet you hear people's bodies thudding and it sounds like they're just falling into a swimming pool it's like this complete dream sequence and it's not a heroic like it's not like every other you know action finale of an episode where somebody's just like racing through and ducking for cover and firing right rounds off like he is like he is working as a machine because he nothing else is real anymore except for her on that gurney like that's the only thing that's real you know and when he gets to her the sound comes back in and it's real again and the world's in color and he's all of a sudden present but everything else up until that moment is a dream and then what I love is that The Last of Us Part Two, of course, is going to really deal with the fallout from that in some very meaningful ways that we won't get into. But I love how we are set up for that by the final sequence. The playing out of the dialogue there is the same, and it's my favorite ending to any game other than Bioshock Infinite, which also came out in 2013, and also starred Troy Baker. Uh, and the ending of the game and the ending of the TV show ends with Ellie choosing for that moment to accept what she knows is a lie. And that's a fucking profound way to end something with a smash cut right after it. Right. And I love how Bella Ramsey, like, again, just such a great actor. She communicates just a, a world in that 
silence, right? She waits maybe six seconds and then she says, okay. And you see, and you see this entire lifetime, like she sees in that six seconds, the rest of her life, you know, she sees that like nothing will ever be the same again. And she sees that she can either accept that or she can fight against it. And right now she's too tired to fight it. So she's going to accept that her life has been irrevocably changed by this lie and by this action that he did, knowing that he did it for the love of her and knowing that she wishes that he had not, because in doing so, she feels that he has devalued her life and robbed her of purpose, which is a fucking profound thing to do. And I know that if I had murdered 30 people in a hospital to save Jude or Henry's lives, they would hate me for the rest of their lives for having done that. Like, I know that, you know? But again, that's what love does to people. You do fucking crazy things. And I love that this ends on that note. It doesn't end on a salvation. You know, it doesn't end on on the promise of a new tomorrow. It ends on like, oh my God, the weight of what has happened will echo for the rest of our time on this planet. I uh, also think that last episode is very profound. Uh, what's interesting is, and this is just, I don't, the short film that we made that we directed deals with a similar theme in terms of someone making a choice about their child um, and putting other people in danger um, because of the love of their child. So, so I love that theme. I love the moral ambiguity. And I think for part two of this discussion, I really want to talk about, for lack of better terms, the wrong and the right of doing something like that. What do you, you know, do you kill 30 people to save one life? Is it, is it moral to um, kill a young girl who can save maybe the world with uh, what's going on in her body? Is, is that moral? Like there are two moral choices. Do you let her die or do you save her and kill people? He, Joel chosen the other path. He chose to not let her die and to kill her, to kill all these people and save her. Was that morally Right. And I'm not talking in a religious sense. I'm talking about as people, as humans, um, decisions that we make. I love this type of discussion and I can't wait to dive into it further. Uh, this, I didn't look at the runtime. Sometimes I look at like if I'm watching Mandalorian, I'll look at the runtime like, okay, you're going to waste my time on 20 minutes. <laughs> um, but I didn't look at the runtime with the show because it, the runtimes never meant anything to me. I've just been immersed and engrossed the whole time. I was really blown away. Uh, the whole sequence of him going through that hospital and taking off people one by one, it was haunting. It was disturbing. Um, at the same time, like I just felt Joel's heart beating within me. Like, I mean, I don't have children, but my nephew, my oldest nephew, Sebastian, whose birthday is today. Uh, if, like, I care about him like he's my own. I mean, he's been in my life since, you know, I was there for every day of his life for the first five years, watching him every week, um, feeding him formula when he was a baby, um, watching baby Einstein with him, watching Teletubbies. I, I was, I've been there for every step of his, of his childhood, um, in a way that only parents are typically. Um, and so if someone put his life in danger, you better believe I would, I would throw down for him for sure. Um, but at the same time, we can say that, but can we do it? We can say that, but can we do it? And so we watch Joel do these things. And then uh, he takes it one step further. And the woman who confronts him when he's got Ellie in her hands, he shoots her. He didn't have to kill her, but he killed her because he knew she would come after her. But at the same time, 
was that a morally right thing for him to do just to kill her? I, there's all of these questions. I, I was blown away. I, I By the end of it, you knew that Ellie knew that he was lying, but you knew that Ellie was just trying to find peace. Um, and it didn't leave me with this, oh my God, I can't wait for season two. Yeah, I'm excited about season two. But if that was the end, that would be enough for me. Um, it was really perfectly done. Like I, I can envision them living in that town and doing what they need to do, but I also know it's not the end. So I am excited about what they have to do. What I'm not excited about is probably the year and a half we're going to have to wait in order to get season two. Whatever the case, the show is so amazing. They need to take their time and do it just like they did the first season. Um, so yeah, I, no complaints for me. I thought it was brilliant. Well, with that, I think we're going to go ahead and put a stop, although I'm sure we could do another two hours of this tonight. Um, but for the sake of our bedtime i think we're going to stop for tonight but thank you uh we've had an amazing month on patreon like we we have had so many people join and not only join but so many people who have upped their pledge amount and so many people who have joined at, at levels that are higher than they need to be doing to get access to things so thank you so much to everybody who's done that you have shout outs coming on the main shows so you know stay tuned for that but um just just thank you like so incredibly much we have a lot more coming uh, our short film of course will premiere in just over a month from today uh when you're hearing this it'll be basically a month and a week out from the premiere of our short film which is a little terrifying to say out loud because we got to get our shit together but oh the good news God, is yes. but it is we got we have all of our photography is wrapped we are done with that we are in the edit right now we are color grading we are matching footage together choosing takes and i'm starting the music and you're going to be seeing lots of little bits and pieces of that on Patreon. So thank you so much to everybody who's joined. And thank you to Micah, obviously, for being awesome and being a huge influence on my love of The Last of Us as well. And thank you to Dan, who, in addition to being one of our best friends in the world, is just always a pleasure to have on and somebody who is still at the beating heart of these things, even though you've been gone since the Paleolithic era. Um, <laughs> I really, really, it's been great having you back on tonight. And it makes it me, really has. It makes me like, smile. I've missed you, and this has been long overdue. We've been talking about having you on a lot of shows. This is the show that finally worked out, which, of course, it should have. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you guys for having me on. It was really nice uh, talking with everyone. Yeah, talk soon, everybody. <laughs>